The Bible reading today is Psalm 16, and you can follow in your bulletins or in your own Bibles or on your Bible apps. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eye always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andy. Uh, just a reminder, uh, if we have time, we'll uh, perhaps entertain a question or two after the message. And so if you uh, are thinking about questions throughout the message, you can write them down in the sermon notes uh, area in the back of your bulletin. Text them to me. My phone number's in there. Um, just, to, just in case we, uh, we have time for that. <clears throat> we have uh, all summer long been looking at a, a series or in a series where we've been looking at different psalms. And what we've said about the psalms is that they are, are God's prayer book given to God's people to give us language that gives voice to the, the feelings, the emotions that we have as we face different circumstances in our lives. Plus, at the same time, these psalms give language and give direction on how God would have us use our voices and use our emotions and bring them to Him in such a way that, uh, that, we, de that we deal with them uh, positively, that we deal with them in a healthy way, that we deal with them uh, in a way that is pleasing to Him and hopefully strengthening for our own hearts and lives. And so we've been going through a whole bunch of different psalms, and this is the last one that we're going to look at, and we're going to look at Psalm 16. We're going to look at Psalm 16 for two reasons. One is, it's all about hope, and what a great way to finish a series like this, finish on, 
a, a series like this on a hopeful note. It's all about confidence. And to be honest with you, we're also going to uh, uh, look at it simply because it's one of my favorite psalms and um, I get to choose what to preach on. So I wanted to preach on one of my favorite psalms. You know, you know how you have... Um, you know, you have Bible passages that are really meaningful to you and really powerful to you, and then, let's face it, you wish you had the time or the chutzpah to start getting out commentaries and Bible study materials and stuff so you can learn more about that passage because you really like it, but you, you don't really do it. Here's a plug for, for all of you. Of what, here's a good reason to become a minister. You get paid to do that very thing. Every now and then, you find a passage you really like, and you're like, hey, I want to know more about this. And you actually have the materials and the time to start thinking about what's going on in those passages. And so that's what, one of the reasons we're looking at Psalm 16. One of the reasons I love Psalm 16 and the Psalms of David generally is what's unique about David is that we, through the Psalms, we get a window into his intimate, personal relationship with God. But we also, in the rest of, or not the rest of the Old Testament, but in other portions of the Old Testament, we get a biography of his life. So we get to see a big picture of what, what this guy's life was like and how that life uh, affected and infiltrated his relationship with God. David did not have a perfectly rosy life. First of all, he, uh, he was not a favorite of his many brothers, though maybe he was a favorite of his father. So he kind of grew up in a home where, he, you know, he's the youngest and forgotten, and uh, um, there's probably all kinds of neuroses that he developed as, as the youngest child in a big family with all these brothers who are important and go off to war for Israel, that kind of thing. So he grows up in this, this kind of home, spends a lot of time by himself, which is very interesting. Uh, you know, as a shepherd going out with the sheep, he'd spend days probably by himself, and he didn't have a cell phone to Snapchat his friends and keep in contact on Instagram, what's going on in the world around. It was just him and the animals. Um, when he did become uh, part of Sam, or Solomon's, no, Sam, sorry, Sam, no, not Sam, Saul, no. Who's the guy who was king before him? I'm all confused. Yeah, okay, I got it. I knew I, one of those names was right. Yeah. All of you guys are like, hey, you better spend time studying. You don't know your Bible, dude. Come on. Saul, King Saul. When he was in King Saul's court, he, uh, he, he became very popular with the people and therefore not very popular with Saul. And his own leader, his own king, tried to put him to death. And then he was on the run like crazy and um, had to live in caves and in the desert and in hiding and that kind of stuff. When he finally became king, then uh, he had a number of victories and that was all very good. But he also had a, a number of major moral failures in his life, most notably, of course, his adultery with Bathsheba, which was the wife, by the way, of one of his best friends. A lot of people don't realize that. Uh, she was the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his best but killed so that he could steal the wife. So he had some pretty major moral uh, uh, failings. And then also as a father, he maybe not, was not very good. He had one son, Absalom, who tried to put him to death tried to kill him and tried to take his kingdom away from him. And yet, throughout all of that life, the strange thing about King David is he had a hope and a confidence that just seemed unshakable. 
that seemed like it could not be taken away from him. I'm convinced, actually, that it's David reckoning with his weakness and his shortcomings that, that had a huge part to play in him having this kind of confidence because he, he seems to be a picture of what Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to what Paul says. He says, he, but he said to me, speaking about God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. I delight in these things. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a strange paradox, so to speak, of the Christian faith, which is when we are in our weakest moments, when we are admitting that we are incapable, we don't have the resources, we don't have the power, we don't have the ability to face our circumstances, to deal with the stuff of our life, it's in those moments that God's power is made most manifest in us. In other words, it, it actually comes to the fore in our lives. It becomes a real, actual force in our lives. I know that sounds maybe strange to some of you, but, but I have noticed this recently in my own life. A couple of things have come up that have been hard, that have been very difficult, that have been unexpected, frankly, in my life. And what I found was, was that as I went through those things and found myself in increasingly desperate straits because of those things, there w I was driven deeper into God and into these words that, that David says in Psalm 16, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I, I started taking those words on myself more. And strangely enough, even when the junk was happening all around me, I had a weird poise. It didn't happen all the time, I admit, okay? Like, it wasn't, like, constant. There were sleepless nights and troubled moments, but when you come to the place where you say, in you I take refuge, and you really bite down on that, you're released from the responsibility of being in control yourself. And it's like a massive burden is lifted off your shoulders because you're like, wow, you know, I, this ain't my problem. Well, it's your problem, but it's not my responsibility. Do you get what I'm saying? Maybe I should just keep preaching the sermon instead of having a personal uh, counseling session with you here. Uh, let's, let's look at Psalm 16 together to see where this hope comes from. Because the principle, the, the theme, the, the lesson of Psalm 16 is this. The key to confidence and the key to hope is found in putting your trust in God alone. And the alone part of Put your trust in God alone is emphasized in this psalm. Let's explore this together. Look at verses 1 and 2. David says this, Keep me safe, <clears throat> my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, David 
uh, had a nation that he was ruling over. That's a pretty good thing. David had uh, wives and children, wife and children. Those were good things. He had friends. Those were good things. But he says that he had riches and wealth. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But he says, apart from you, I have no good thing. He even says in verse 3, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. He's talking about the people of God. And he says, I delight in them. I love the people of God. I take pleasure in the people of God. It's like saying, you know, I really love my church. I love my church. I love coming there and seeing the people that I'm in communion with and in relationship with. I love worshiping with them. I love fellowshipping with them. I love being with them. I love my church. He says, apart from God, even those things, even that thing is not so good. Now, what's he saying here? What he's saying is, is that apart from God, the other good things that we have in this life and that God gives us in this life are ultimately unsatisfying. That's what he's saying. He's saying those things are only good in relation to God, only in their connection to God, only in their dependence upon God. Are they good things for us? Now, that's a good, that's, it's fair to ask at this point, especially maybe there's somebody here who's not a Christian at all, and says, now wait a minute. You're telling me that me, non-Christian, I've got friends, I've got family, I've got a good job, I've got a good life, I like my house, whatever. I have all these so-called good things. You're telling me that apart from God, those things aren't good. Why on earth would I believe that? You need to prove to me that those things aren't ultimately good things apart from God. Well, David attempts to do that, just that. Look at verse 4. In verse 4... He says this, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. David makes an assumption here that runs throughout the whole Bible. And the assumption is this. We talked about it actually last week with Mark a little bit. And that is that all human beings worship. We all worship. It is part of our nature. You could say it's in our DNA. I don't know if they found the worship gene yet or not, but human beings are designed, are created to be worshiping beings. That's, that's a fundamental part and, a, and an inescapable part of our not limited to that. Look, look what David says. He says something that is extremely insightful. He says, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. See, to worship is to run after something. It's to, to set your sights on something and say, that's the thing I'm going to seek out. That's the thing I'm going to pursue. That's the thing that I am going to value more than anything else. It's to make that thing, as verse 2 says, your good thing. You notice what he says? Apart from you, I have no good thing. It's that, it's that thing in your life that matters more to you than anything else. Ask yourself the question, if, if I were to lose X, is it a question? Say to yourself, if I were to lose X, 
I wouldn't even want to live. If you can come up with an X, that's what you worship. Or ask yourself the question, what am I most terrified of losing? Am I most terrified of losing my portfolio? Am I most terrified of losing my job? Is it my, am I most terrified of losing the respect of other people? Am I most terrified of losing that person, that, that romantic relationship? That thing that you are most terrified of losing, that's the thing that you worship. That's the thing that you're running after. That's the thing that matters to you. And notice, David is saying the problem with putting your ultimate trust and hope in anything other in God than God is, in verse 4, he says, you will suffer more and more. It leads to suffering. Our problem is we don't always see that, and so we get sucked into following after these things, but David points out that it leads to suffering. You will suffer more and more, and probably the best language we have to understand this in our modern context is actually the language of addictions. Some of you are very familiar with addictions because you've had them yourself, or you've been very, very close to a person who has struggled deeply with addictions. I'm thinking particularly of substance addictions, but it doesn't have to be that. There are people who have been addicted to sex. There have been people who are addicted to gambling, people who are addicted to food. I guess food's a substance, but you know what I mean by the difference. And uh, in addictions, what you, what you have is something called the tolerance effect. You know what the tolerance effect is, right? You need more of the substance. So when you first are introduced to the substance, you don't need a lot of that substance to get kind of the rush. But as time goes on, you become kind of, you, you tolerate that substance more. So you need more and more of that substance to get that rush. That's why when an alcoholic drinks, who's a, who's a heavy drinker, they, it takes longer for them to become inebriated than it does for a person who hardly drinks at all. Now, Neil Planiga, Cornelius Planiga, who's a, a, a theologian, he writes this. He says, what moves the addict to the bait? At every stage, addiction is driven by one of the most powerful, mysterious, vital forces of human existence. What drives addiction is not just longing of brain or belly or loins, but finally of the heart. Because they are human beings, addicts long for wholeness, for fulfillment, and for the final good that believers call God. Like all idolatries, addiction taps this vital spiritual force and draws off its energies to objects and processes that drain the addict instead of fulfilling them. That's why David says they will suffer more and more. It starts at one level, but it continues and it increases. And you know, even at the top, it's never enough. I, I, I rack my brain for who said this, but, and if you, I will give you a cookie maybe. If you know who says this, there is a really rich guy <laughs> from the past who was asked in an interview which million was the most satisfying to make? And his answer was the next one. Now, was that J.D. Rockefeller? I thought it was J.D. Rockefeller, but I might be wrong. It's right. It is J.D. Rockefeller. There was this no cookie for you, because I knew. 
but I appreciate you uh, confirming. Uh, so even at the top, he had reached the pinnacle. He had more money than he knew what to do with, and yet he was driven because it wasn't the money. It was, it was what the money did for him. It was what it represented that mattered to him. And contrast that with what David says in verses 5 and 6. He says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. He says, you're my portion and my cup. Earlier, he says, apart from you, I have no good thing. Continuing this language of absolute commitment to finding in God alone that deep satisfaction, that deep security, that deep sense of identity that all human beings are walking through this life trying to gain and maintain. That's why we worship. Notice what he says. You have made my lot secure. In other words, when I have you, I can be certain of who I am. I can be certain of what my future is. I can be certain, even when I'm uncertain about everything else, I can't be sure that that girl's going to like me tomorrow as much as I hope so. I can't be sure that that portfolio is going to continue to build wealth because the market could tank. I can't be sure that my kids are going to grow up and be upstanding citizens, members of society. I can't be sure. I can hope. It, things may even look like they're trending in that direction, but I can never be absolutely sure. I cannot be completely secure. And yet, in God, he says, my lot is secure. You know, when you're, when you're, I'll pick one that's always been a thing for me. So having a good reputation has always been an idol that I have had to do battle with. And when you are living for your reputation, you are always concerned about maintaining it, uh, building it up better, um, protecting it. You will actually become a secretive person. You will become secretive about your struggles. You won't be able to be honest about them because you're always terrified that your reputation gets sullied by the truth. Okay? And, and you'll, when it's, you, you'll have a hard time looking for help from other people I really do believe that this is a problem for a lot of pastors, and it's at the root of why you hear about um, so many prominent pastors falling from grace. You know, the, the lid gets torn off or the veil gets torn down, and all of a sudden you discover that this pastor has got all kinds of massive problems, and nobody knew why. Beholden to the idol, but the suffering of those, what is it, six, 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 they... Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. David knew he had a delightful inheritance because he was rooted in God alone. And look at what he got. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. He got guidance because life is complicated and confusing and hard. Look at verse 8. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. He knew safety because life is fragile and unpredictable. Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure 
see new joy. Because life is often hard and painful. So here's David committing himself to finding in God his, his, his good thing, refusing to give his heart to other things and chase after other things. And what does he get? He gets the thing that every human being is longing for in this life. Guidance, because it's hard and I don't know what to do. Safety, because it's scary and unpredictable. And joy, because there is a lot of pain. It's a good list, eh? Pretty good list. But it's not even the end of it. It's not in the end of it, because at the end, he expresses this ultimate confidence. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David's hope actually extends beyond this life into a whole other life, a whole other existence, life after death. How in the world could David do that? Well, it's prophecy. You know how it says, uh, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay? Another translation for that, and one that I, I actually prefer, is holy one. Nor will you let your holy one See decay. Who's, who's that holy one? Is he talking about himself? Well, if you're, if you're talking about yourself, then you understand that the translation maybe is better to go with faithful one because we're not holy. We can't fulfill God's will perfectly and follow him uh, without any sin or every, any deviation, obviously. But but what if he's talking about someone else? Is it possible he's talking about someone else? If you know your New Testament, you know that there's, there's someone that people knew as the Holy One of Israel. Mark chapter 1, the demons see Jesus coming and they say, oh, it's the Holy One of Israel. In John chapter 6, Jesus has told a crowd of people, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will perish. And all kinds of people leave because they go, whoa, that is crazy. And the disciples are standing there and Jesus says, you don't want to leave? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And in case you're not entirely convinced yet, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter has the Holy Spirit come down on him in power. He stands up and he preaches his first sermon to the people of Jerusalem. And he basically quotes Psalm 16 saying, that's Jesus, risen from the dead. Somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, David was looking ahead. He was looking ahead, and he was certain of eternal pleasures at God's right hand because he saw ahead that somehow Jesus would come. He, I can't, I'm not saying he knew who Jesus was exactly, but, but Jesus did come and fulfill David's prophecy and his hope because he came and lived 
perfectly, faithfully, then he died sacrificially on the cross for you and me and for your sin and for my sin, and then he did rise from the dead. David says, you have made known to me the path of life. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because he left eternal pleasures at his Father's right hand and came into the muck and mire of this world to rescue us, to destroy death, to give you this ultimate hope. Now here's the amazing thing. This summer, there was a, a, a small group that um, studied the book, Remember Death. You got to read this book. You got to read this book because the premise of that book is essentially the premise of David's psalm. It's the same thing. And the premise is this, cultivating a death awareness in other words, coming to grips with our own mortality and the fact that every tick of our heart, our hearts are wind-up clocks. They're not digital clocks or solar-powered or whatever. They're wind-up clocks. As soon as you were born, your heart had a certain number of ticks in it, and it's going down. And for some of us, it means a life into our 70s or 80s. Some of us, maybe it means, it means a life into our teens or our our young adulthood or whatever, but we are all living on borrowed time, if I can use that phrase. But coming to grips with that, coming to grips with the fact that, that death is a reality in light of the gospel allows you to live in the joy of these promises because you see, death is ultimately the one who steals joy, security, identity from all of us. Look, Those of you who are married and those of you who aren't yet but dream of it, you got to realize there is sorrow at the end of that relationship. No matter how you cut it. Because one of you will be standing beside the coffin of the other of you. Most likely. I know, I know, don't look for the circumstances where that's not how it's going to work. Just face reality. And so sorrow lies at the end of this life, even in the most important things that you could ever pursue. And yet here is David saying, no, 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 there are eternal pleasures at God's right hand for all of us who would hold on to something outside of this life as our good thing. Read Remember Death. Maybe we should do a whole church book study of it at some point. Become this really, everybody will find out. Grace Valley Church is that morbid church that <laughs> spends all the time thinking about death. But look at the promise at the end. My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. That's present joy, Right? He's speaking in the present tense. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not abandon me to the grave. You will not abandon me to Sheol. I will face it. It's coming. But I will not be abandoned to it. It's not the end. And so, reckoning with that, that 
enemy we have to face enables us to, to bring eternal joy and confidence into the present life that we are living right now. You, will make known to, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Confidence, hope. You can have it in him, and so can I. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence and the hope that we can have in Jesus. Um, Thank you for these psalms that not only express how we feel at times and are so realistic about how our lives are often weighed down by many, many different kinds of cares. Thank you also for the psalms that don't just leave us there in, in, in those experiences, but, but give us language and give us a, a map to a way out of there. And we, don't conf we confess it's not going to be easy it's not always easy to live out of the truths expressed in Psalm 16, but we do ask, Father, that you would slowly but surely, as you sink your word deeper and deeper into our hearts, enable us to do that. Thank you for the promises that your gospel gives us. May those promises be powerful antidotes to the sorrow we sometimes feel in this life. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.